This is Philippe Albuquerque. I am the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. I would like to welcome our listeners to the next in our series of Editor Choice Podcasts. Today we are featuring the article, Current Endovascular Strategies for Cerebral Venous Thrombosis, Report of the SNIS Standards and Guidelines Committee. This article will appear in the print August issue of the JNIS and is currently online. We are delighted today to welcome Justin Frazier, who is the Surgical Director of the Stroke Unit at the University of Kentucky. He is an Associate Professor of Neurological Surgery in the Department of Neurological Surgery and a senior author on this manuscript, as well as the head of our SNIS Standards and Guidelines Committee. Welcome, Justin, and thank you again for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's a great opportunity. I really appreciate it. Let's uh, look at your article here in a little bit more detail. Uh, again, this is one of several standards and guidelines that the JNIS has uh, been fortunate to publish and, and to work with uh, Justin's team uh, in production. Uh, and I thank you for that as well. Uh, so, Justin, can you give us a, a brief synopsis of the manuscript and, um, in particular, discuss some of the challenges that your group had in putting together a statement on a uh, relatively rare disease that at least endovascularly is treated through many different techniques. Yes, uh, thank you very much. So just to give a little bit of background uh, to our listeners, um, the uh, SNIS Standards and Guidelines Committee is tasked with continually looking at some of the hot topics and most important aspects of our field and trying to develop evidence-based guidelines, uh, you know, to try to guide what we do and how we evaluate disease. You know, there's been a lot of emphasis in the last few years on ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, you know, aneurysms, uh, you know, uh, mechanical thrombectomy, and we we have been working on all of that and continue to work on all that. But we also wanted to address some rarer types of stroke that we see. And in this case, we chose cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, primarily because there have been a lot of developments, a lot of publications in the last few years by different groups about how they are approaching severe forms of this disease endovascularly. And so this was a chance to really try to gather that evidence together to provide a document that would briefly go over some of the presentation, the risk factors, the basics of diagnosis and treatment, but also quickly move into a discussion of what's out there with regard to endovascular therapy. It is a little bit more of a challenge than our typical guidelines documents because in many cases, so for example, mechanical thrombectomy, there are innumerable at this point randomized controlled trials. So there's a lot more strong evidence. Whereas with something like this, as you said before, the, the disease itself is more rare. And so we really have to be careful about how we interpret the data. And that is reflected in how we weigh the evidence in our recommendations. Yeah, that, that is very clear in the manuscript up front and, and uh, I think uh, very nicely done. It, you mentioned as well that the risk factors and symptoms uh, of this relatively rare disease are also quite diverse. Can you discuss it a little bit greater detail your algorithm uh, for the diagnosis and management of cerebral venous thrombosis. Right, and I think what you're referring to is we have a figure in the paper where our group tried to put together an algorithm for an approach 
on how to come at this disease as an endovascular uh, a specialist. Um, it, again, this, is, this was developed as a collaboration. Um, there are not randomized controlled trials to support particular algorithms, uh, but our goal was to try to rope in all of the diverse presentations and risk factors that you see for this disease. And, you know, for example, you have major, the major risk factors include a number of, of variables, the infection, trauma, dehydration, pregnancy, oral contraceptives. And these are, we listed all of these in, in, in the manuscript, but it really, it, it's important to think about these things when you're considering this disease. Those are symptoms that could, could be caused by a variety of different, uh, different diseases. So that, that really does compound the difficulty. Yes, and, and the, the clinical presentation as well can, be, uh, can mimic many other neurologic problems that we see every day. So something, things as simple as headaches and, double, and blurred vision, but then you can also have seizures, you can have papilledema, focal neurologic deficits. And so in many ways, Cerebral venous sinus thrombosis is the cerebrovascular mimicker, if you will, in the sense mimic many other neurologic diseases. And so in my mind, one of the main goals here is to draw attention to it, to, to put it out there and say, listen, this is a disease that mimics other things. And so it, it always needs to be in the back of your mind when you start to see a patient where the diagnosis isn't very clear from the onset. You know, a patient who, say, comes in with a, you know, young patient with a spontaneous hemorrhage in the cortex. That, and if you start to ask questions and you get these risk factors, that's where that algorithm kind of comes into play to say, hey, at very least, do some vascular imaging to try to and rule this out. Because it's easier to rule it out and take it off the table than to not know it's there and then it can progress. You know, yeah. if you have a small thrombosis and you don't, and you treat it, oftentimes those can be treated medically. But it's cases where it's not recognized up front, the thrombosis then propagates. And that's where you get into a situation where we as endovascular therapists get called to the bedside to try to, try to do something more. And that patient that rapidly progresses to coma, uh, those patients are, are quite difficult to manage and often do poorly. So I agree with you that the sooner we can get ahead of this particular diagnosis, uh, certainly the better for these patients. You discuss also, Justin, uh, the, the myriad uh, endovascular techniques that, that we use uh, when we're literally throwing the, the kitchen sink at uh, these kind of cases. Can you briefly uh, summarize some of these techniques and, and what you think are the indications for one technique versus the other? What has been published really is, as you said, a myriad of different experiences. I think the goal with any of these techniques is the same, and the goal is to create channels, open channels, through the venous sinuses to provide venous drainage and to allow the, you know, the anticoagulation medicine to work, right? So um, there have been a number of techniques published. Um, some of the more common ones, obviously, are extensions of our experience with arterial thrombectomy in the sense of using our traditional reperfusion catheters and stent retrievers to try to remove thrombus. Um, you know, you can use suction pumps to try to remove the thrombus. 
There are some other techniques as well, using um, fluid aspiration with things like an angiojet. Others have published a technique where you can inflate a balloon in the sinus to act as almost an anchor to allow you to remove the thrombus and move your reperfusion catheters back and forth. The reality is any of these techniques in the correct hands when safely performed can achieve the goal. And I, I couldn't really tell you in particular, is there one technique for this patient versus that patient? Oftentimes, the best advice is to have a familiarity with each one of these and be able to pull and draw from them in a case where you're trying to get this open, perhaps the stent retriever didn't work, try the reperfusion, you know, try an adapt technique, maybe that would work for you. You know, it, have, being able to kind of move from one technique to the other, I think, would, is more of a recipe for success with the understanding that the end goal is to create an open channel through those sinuses. Yeah, certainly. One technique that we frequently employ also is, is leaving a microcatheter within the sinus and infusing thrombolytic uh, for you know, a prolonged period of time. Absolutely. Uh, so there, there are certainly, as discussed in this manuscript, uh, multiple different and quite effective, as you mentioned, uh, techniques that can be employed. So Justin, um, just quite briefly, can you then summarize the overall recommendations of the Standards and Guidelines Committee on this particular subject? Yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost is keeping a suspicion for this diagnosis, keep, keeping it in your mind. And then if it is in your mind in a particular patient, you want to get some vascular imaging. And, and there isn't, we don't really have a recommendation as far as MRI and MR venogram over CT, CT venogram. I think the important thing is to do one of them. Um, angiography can provide more information sometimes when non-invasive imaging you know, doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, obviously, for medical management, that's very important to this disease. And, being, being able and willing to institute rapid anticoagulation and maintain that protocol is important. Uh, there is some evidence that you may want to or need to employ techniques to control ICP. For example, decompression, surgical decompression can be helpful to at least abate the side effects of swelling and edema until the disease can be brought under control. And then finally, um, you know, work, being able and willing and savvy with endovascular treatment techniques, again, whether they be placing microcatheters and using thrombolysis or mechanical thrombectomy procedures to try to reopen and create channels for blood drainage and to try to improve the uh, uh, cerebral venous drainage, at least in the short time until medicine can work. Um, and so, those are the main core elements of what we were trying to get at with this manuscript and really try to bring the discussion about this rare disease to the forefront and remind our listeners and our readers and our membership and our others who are providers in this sphere about this disease and how important it can be. At the end of the day, what's special, I think, about this disease is that it can be extremely devastating with reported mortalities up to 40%. Uh, but with aggressive intervention, 
oftentimes the brain tissue is intact. It's not like an ischemic stroke where entire areas of the brain are damaged, but rather the brain is swollen, angry, and can progress to hemorrhage. But with aggressive therapy, you can often get very good outcomes. I completely agree. This, uh, this is great work, Justin. And it's, uh, it's wonderful to see that uh, our techniques that we're refining in the, uh, in the mechanical thrombolytic field uh, for ischemic stroke, we're using uh, and applying in uh, the treatment of uh, cerebral venous thrombosis as well. So uh, we're, we're really, uh, I, I think, uh, encountering uh, new techniques and, and using them in novel ways. So Justin, I thank you again for uh, joining me on this podcast. Again, Justin is the um, chair of our uh, SNIS Standards and Guidelines Committee. His committee's most recent work, Current Endovascular Strategies for Cerebral Venous Thrombosis Report of the SNIS Standards and Guidelines Committee, will appear in the August print issue of the JNIS and is currently online. Thank you again, Justin, and uh, continue with the great work. Congratulations. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity.